Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Tonight, we're going to find out where you can see some real cool things. John Bell is with us, who is an elected fellow of the Massachusetts Historical Society. And I'll go through the whole thing. Fellow of the American Antiquarian Society and a member of the Colonial Society of Massachusetts and an American Revolution enthusiast like so many of you. And further... A super duper expert on the Boston Massacre. Correct, Thank you. Correct, sir. Uh, let's see. That's what this hour is all about. <laughs> well, thanks for coming in. The uh, the cool thing that you can see, see, the coolest thing you can see, is a bullet from the actual Boston Massacre. But we'll just tease that. We'll we'll talk about that later. You do have an exhibit that is opening at the Historical Society. That's right. The Massachusetts Historical Society has just opened this exhibit called Voices from the Boston Massacre. It's going to be leading up to the 250th anniversary of that event next March 5th. And so it has the just unparalleled collection of documents and artifacts from the Historical Society's own collection. We'll get to what's in there in the not-too-distant future right here. But first, why... Are you most interested of all the things that went on in the revolution in the Boston Massacre? There are a couple of reasons. One is that because there were a lot of uh, investigations, there were trials, there's a lot of eyewitness testimony about what exactly happened there. Now, of course, if you have uh, 50, 100 people all testifying about the same thing, they're not going to say the same thing happened. So it's a very interesting way of looking at evidence and trying to figure out what happened. The other aspect of it that caught my attention is that this was a, uh, an event that young people, children in fact, or at least teenagers, were intimately involved in that they uh, helped shape. And you see that so rarely. So that's what first intrigued me about the Boston Massacre and the other events around that time. Okay. And if someone wants to see this exhibit, what, do, what does one have to do? Sign up for something, pay for something, do anything at all? One has to... Go to the Massachusetts Historical Society on Boylston Street, end of Boylston Street near the Fenway, 1154 Boylston, and arrive there between 10 and 4, Monday through Saturday, and walk in and say, I'd like to see the exhibit. That's it. That is so it. So you just go there. It is free. They have, uh, they're going to have tours. They're going to have talks. They're going to have other special events. Uh, but there is no need to – there is no admission fee. There is no need to be a member. Uh, there is, uh, it's, they are delighted to show you this. You could become a member, though, if you wanted, right? And what's, what's that like? That must feel pretty good. I'm uh, a member of the Mass Historical Society. It is. The Massachusetts Historical Society was, was founded in 1791. It is the oldest historical society in North America, I believe. And so if you like history, if you like local history, it's a wonderful place to support, to visit, to research, uh, to go to the events, the uh, the the talks, the uh, um, the panels, the s- uh, seminars. It's a really terrific resource that we have right here in Boston. Do you have dinners? Um, dinners. I wouldn't say dinners. I just, I, I'm sure they, they they well they have certain fundraising dinners, but uh-huh. on some talks they will uh, they have receptions beforehand, so you can okay. Uh, you don't go hungry. All right, good. I just picture sitting down 
just some fancy dinner with all these smart people. I think that would be cool. Okay. Well, let's go back to 1767, June. Parliament passed the Townsend Act. Is that the beginning, the Stamp and Townsend Act? That is what starts the whole ball rolling because the Stamp Act was two years before, but that was taken away. One year before, everybody thought, oh, we're happy. Uh, we're going back to the way it was before, but not. Parliament came up with this new set of taxes. Then to enforce the taxes, they beefed up the custom system. Then because Bostonians and others pushed back against the customs officers in a violent way, they sent in troops uh, in the fall of 1768. So that's the situation in Boston as, as the year 1769 comes to a close. There are uh, more than 1,000 British soldiers patrolling the streets in this town of only about 15,000 people. So there, there was pushback against the, the, the Townsend Acts. What were the Townsend Acts? The Townsend Acts were a set of tariffs or duties, uh, which, as we all know from talking about tariffs today, were taxes that were paid by customers uh, or importers, the merchants bringing in goods from Britain. Uh, they, were taxes, they were taxing tea, paper, glass, lead, painters' colors, so dyes. These were all things which the parliament decided, okay, they, the Americans can't really get from anywhere else. They are the goods of civilized society, so the colonists should be willing to pay for the, the price of civilized right. society by paying a little bit extra for these goods. So were, were, these, were these unreasonable, or was the populace just so inflamed that even if they were reasonable, they would have complained? I think that... You could make an argument that they were reasonable. The The taxation burden in Britain was definitely higher than it was in the colonies. Uh, the colonies wanted to be able to choose their own taxes, as we all do, and they wanted a lower tax burden. What they were really objecting to, as this phrase is, ta is taxation without representation. So parliament making these rules instead of our own legislature making the rules. Okay, and you say there was pushback. Can you talk about incidents that were included in the overall pushback? Well, uh, one incident was in June uh, 1768 when the Customs Service confiscated a sloop called the Liberty uh, because it had been caught smuggling wine, they, they said. And uh, using uh, with the help of the Royal Navy, they seized that ship and took it away from the wharf, and that ship belonged to John Hancock, and uh, there was a riot in town. Uh, people were beating up customs officers. Uh, they That night, the crowd went to one of the customs officers' homes, grabbed his boat, dragged it all the way across town, and burned it on the common. Yeah, tell me about that. <laughs> that's uh, that's what happened. I heard a little bit about I have heard a little bit about that. It was a ritual burning of property, which was one way that the crowd could show their disrespect and their anger at gentlemen without physically attacking the men is to just uh, attack their property. So they would attack their fences, their windows, their houses, and in this case, their boat. There was another situation where someone's house was attacked, a guy shot back and uh, hit a kid, and there was a uh, retribution. Yes, that happened in February 1770. In this case, the man whose house was being attacked was not one of the high-level customs officers, like the man with the boat. This is a, a working-class guy. He's sort of on the front lines, uh, he was what was called a land waiter or tide waiter. 
uh, and he actually had some, uh, uh, he had a sex scandal in his past. So he was not a popular What was the sex scandal? Uh, he was from Woburn. Yeah. Uh, he uh, was uh, living with his wife, uh, his children, their children, um, uh, including some from her first marriage, and her sister. Her sister was also being the housekeeper for the, one of the town ministers. The sister became pregnant. Everybody thought the minister had made her pregnant. That went on for more than a year with everybody accusing the minister. There were libel suits. There was back. And then suddenly uh, she admitted that, in fact, she had become pregnant by her brother-in-law, this guy. This is probably beyond the scope of this discussion. But why would she initially blame the minister or allow the minister to be blamed? Uh, because uh, she had to wait for her sister to die before she came out and admitted that she had had this affair with her sister's husband. Wow. Okay. And so as soon as they, as soon as the couple, the, the now happy couple, uh, admitted to the paternity of this child, they had to move out out of Woburn into Boston, and uh, uh, the man then made his living for a while. Uh, as a confidential informer for the law enforcement, for the attorney general, and then for the customs service, which is, of course, not the way to get in good graces with your neighbors. He was just not liked very much. He was not liked very much. He was probably pretty desperate at this point. Um, he, there are There's a moment in 1767 or 6 when there's uh, the boys see the customs people at work and actually go and decide to go and jeer at his house because they they associate him with everything that the customs office does. Then he, uh, we get to February 1770. He tries to break up a demonstration uh, outside a shop, uh, a demonstration in support of a, what was called non-importation, a boycott. That caused all, and this was, uh, the, the demonstration was mostly schoolboys. And when he tried to knock over their sign, they got upset at him. They followed him to his house. They started throwing things at his house. He started uh, yelling at them. They started throwing more things at his house. He uh, took out his gun and shot a blank shot at them. They came running back and started throwing stones at his house. All his windows were broken. He shot out the, uh, the upstairs window, and he killed a boy who was about 11 years old. We're talking about events leading up to the Boston Massacre now. We talked about the pushback against the Townsend Act, but before the pushback, there was a, an effort of non-importation or a boycott. Can you talk about how that fit in? Yes, this was something, this was a strategy that the uh, colonists had tried against the Stamp Act and they thought it worked, so they brought it back against the Townsend Act. The idea was that we're not going to order anything from Britain except what we really need uh, for our own industry, and that will put pressure on the merchants in London they're going to think, oh, our business is fading. We have to go to Parliament and convince Parliament to take these taxes off. And the only way a boycott can work is for everybody to participate, or else the people who are still bringing in goods from Britain are the people who have the, the, the market, and they can, they're the only people selling. So there was a lot of pressure on everybody, every shopkeeper, every merchant in Boston to sign on to the non-importation. Okay. And then... You get to John Gray's Rope Walks. Is it Rope Walks? It, it's a rope walk. Uh, I and think there was a fight it, there. It, it's a very long building. And uh, in this building, uh, people, uh, trained rope spinners, would uh, spin uh, hemp into yarn by 
uh, squeezing, they would have a, a, a sort of wreath of uh, hemp around their bodies, and they would uh, walk backwards away from spinning wheels uh, with their uh, fingers squeezing uh, the strands so that the, they would be t- twirled into yarn, and then the yarn would be twisted into rope, and for all that, you need this very long building uh, for the rope to be stretched out. Uh, oh, even, and you have to walk backwards. You have to walk and backwards. And that's why it's rope walks. And that's why it's rope walk. And um, at the Charlestown Navy Yard, there's a very long stone building, even to this day, which is the remnant of the old rope walk that was there. Really? Yes. The and building is there? The building is there, and it's, and it's stone, and it's this immensely long, thin building. But because it's stone and very long, you can't get around it. It's, it is. <laughs> so that's that original time. from back in the, this, at this time? Um, that comes from a later time, um, from the uh, early 1800s. Um, but uh, so there are no, that's I think the only rope walk building left in Boston, and it doesn't go all the way back to the Revolutionary period. Okay. All right, so we've set the scene, and then the evening of March 5. Well, if if you want to talk about the rope walk, what happened at the rope walk was a man, oh, yes. a, a soldier came along, and a rope maker, one of the one of the workers, thought it would be funny to ask, hey, soldier, do you want work? And the soldier said, yes, what, do you, what have you got? And the uh, worker said, ah, you can clean my outhouse, except he didn't say it quite so politely. Right. And this caused the soldier to go back and get some of his buddies to come and fight the rope worker, who then got some of his buddies to come and fight the soldiers. And eventually there was this big brawl, and it, uh, it uh, cascaded into more fights the next day. And so that was part of the violence leading up to the 5th of March. So we had a kid, a 10-year-old kid, killed by somebody from the customs office in late February. We have these brawls happening in early March, and then on March 5th, there are more brawls taking place between the soldiers and the civilians. It's my sense that they, they not only politically were there high, high tensions, but it seemed like they just liked to fight. There was a lot of was, my team, your team. My, I mean, but it, they had no problem with fighting. Like we, we don't fight as much as they used to. They just like, yeah. go, let's fight. No problem. They yeah. kind of liked fighting. There was a physical fighting. That's right. And and Boston already had this as well. They had their North End Gang and their South End Gang. Now, this is a town of 15,000 people. There's only like a quarter mile between the North End and the South End, and they were fighting. Okay. So now we get to March 5, right? Now, we get, now we're at March 5th. We've had uh, brawls. We've had the first death, this little boy named Christopher Sider, and there's still all this tension over the Townsend Act and the... Uh, and the the non-importation. Now, by coincidence, over in London on March 5th, Parliament was moving to rescind, to repeal most of the Townsend duties. Right. But nobody knew that in Boston yet. Nobody knew that in America. That's not. I'm sure that real revolutionaries like John Adams didn't want them repealed. He probably was glad to have the tension. Oh, he well, wanted a fight. He wanted a revolution. <laughs> I think John Adams would have been happy. I think that Samuel. Did I Adams, say John? You said you said I'm John. I'm sorry. I meant Sam. Okay. Well, Samuel. I think Samuel saw the problem as much deeper than just these laws, just these d- tariffs. He saw the whole system as a problem when it came to uh, Parliament trying to tell Boston what to do. Okay. So there was this lone sentry in front of the Customs Building guarding the king's money. So. Cold and dark and a little snow, I guess. 
His name was Hugh White. Private Hugh White of the 29th Regiment of Foot. Uh, he was an ordinary infantryman. Uh, he was out there, and he happened to overhear something that a barber's apprentice was saying. Now, the barber's apprentice, uh, there were two barber's apprentices. They were out there just, they were actually visiting girls or young women who worked in the customs office. Seems, uh, seems natural enough. Exactly. They, I mean, that was all they were. Uh, the girls had gone out to the apothecary, to the drugstore. One of the, uh, these young men, the teenagers, walked them home. Then they went in and had a chat. You know. Then finally, one of the, uh, the sisters of the girls came. One of the, the girl's older brother came down and said, okay, time, time for you to go, boys. And so they went outside. And outside, one of these barber's apprentices, one of these teenagers, started to complain about a British Army officer. He complained that the army officer had not paid money for sh having his head shaved a few months before, and that this officer was no gentleman for n not having paid this bill. Now, in fact, the officer had just paid the bill. He had the receipt in his pocket. That was how recently he had paid the bill, but the barber's apprentice, Edward Garrick, did not know that. Okay. Wow. So it had been months. He finally paid it, but the guy, the kid didn't know it. The kid didn't know it. He walks, the officer walks past, the kid yells, there's the, the officer who owes my fellow apprentice. Uh, the uh, private white says, oh, that officer's a gentleman and he'll pay. And uh, Edward Garrick, the uh, barber's apprentice, says, ah, there are no gentlemen in that regiment. And private white calls uh, Garrick over and clonks him on the side of his head with his musket. Really? See, I didn't know that. And that is the first violence that took place outside uh, the customs house. There's this tradition in the way this is told that, like, boys were just being boisterous or insulting or making trouble for no reason. But, in fact, those particular apprentices seem to have been actually friendly with British soldiers. They had been visiting uh, the British barracks a couple of nights before. So they were maybe just kidding around with Hugh White and saying, ah, there's no gentleman in, the, in that regiment. And so he said, come over here, kid. Yeah. And he hit him with his... Uh, do, do you know how he hit him? Um, Did he go like this with the actual butt of it or the I, side? It, it seems like it's a clonk on the side of the head with the with the uh, the butt of his um, oh. of his musket. What? I, uh, but it's hard I to say to how hurt. it did hurt. Edward Garrick actually testified that he cried. Uh, it was the other apprentices who sort of took the lead in confronting Private White. Then a, sol a sergeant came by and chased them all away. Oh, uh, we're going to find out what comes next after this break. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. We continue with John Bell and the Boston Massacre. So we're getting down to the nitty gritty here. It's just about to explode. And there's a sentry, Hugh White. There's a barber's apprentice to come up and circumstances evolve such that the sentry clonks the kid on the head. What happens next, John L. Bell? Uh, at that point, the kids are get the teenagers are really upset, and one of the things they do, they try to bring more people in to yell at the sentry. Uh, now, as I said before, 
it's only 11 days since a uh, an 11 year old has been killed and so uh, by a customs man and here is a soldier in front of the customs office who's attacked another kid so right away that they're feeding into that anger uh, the boys also uh, go into the nearby church and start ringing the church bell that's another sign for the crowds to gather that's usually the sign of a fire alarm so people are starting to pour out into the streets holding their fire buckets thinking that there's uh, a fire that they're going to have to fight. And sometimes when, when they see it, some of them think, oh, it's just you know, boys fighting with soldiers, and they go home. And others uh, think, okay, i got to get in on this. So, if, so the if, crowd if, starts to grow. If there hadn't been the Boston Massacre, the kids would have gotten in trouble for ringing the bell. Basically a false alarm, right? It would have been a false alarm. That's right. Uh, this was well-known enough uh, as a strategy uh, that uh, – the, the, the ringing the bell to bring out the crowd that it had been done before um, they would not have been able to you know catch those specific kids probably um, but uh, clearly uh, the kids felt that they were in the right they felt they were justified because the soldier had attacked had uh, abused one of their own and some of the people in the crowd felt that way as well other people uh, even a town watchman were coming by and saying no go home go home stop 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 causing all this trouble were these kids also gang members, like in the north or south? Probably it, we don't know. Yeah. Um, in a way, everybody was. Not but that it when, matters. When I say north end gang, south end gang, that I don't think. I mean, that's not like you know the, the wanderers or uh, it's just some sort people of from the north, kids agent. from the north just, end, kids yeah, from the south. Exactly. Okay. It's 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 the whole it's the whole gang. It's our right. gang. Okay, moving on. Uh, so uh, the crowd starts to grow. The sentry, Private White, starts to get nervous. He sends some people, uh, a messenger from the customs office, to go across uh, to the other side of the old state house, what's now the old state house, uh, to the main guard. And that's where the uh, soldiers are headquartered. That is where the uh, officer of the day and the, uh, uh, who is in charge of put, sending out sentries and patrolling the town that night that is where he is, and he's waiting there with some reinforcements. And it takes a while, but finally a captain sends over a corporal, Corporal William Wemmis, and uh, seven privates, all of them from the Grenadier Company of the 29th Regiment. The Grenadiers were, uh, they were taller than the average soldiers. They were uh, an elite corps. And so they began pushing their way through the crowd, uh, sometimes with their guns, sometimes with their bayonets, to get up to ne stand next to Private White. Uh, they, ring they form an arc, uh, sort of uh, half circle or, or a quarter circle at that corner uh, in front of the customs office, facing off this growing crowd. And eventually a, the army captain, Captain Thomas Preston, comes and joins them uh, and is trying to keep order, trying to keep the crowd away from the customs office, away from his own men. But, of course, by putting out more men, he's now got more men in danger to worry about. Meanwhile, the crowd is continuing to grow. And at one point, these uh, a, a, another set of men from the waterfront, some of whom may have been fighting with the soldiers earlier in the evening, all show up. And they, some of them have brought... St sticks of uh, cordwood, firewood, uh, so clubs. They're carrying clubs. Uh, there was a man at the front of this uh, crowd 
uh, a very tall mulatto man who was known as Michael Johnson, who had actually been uh, giving uh, cordwood to another man, saying, take this. And so they were coming. And Michael Johnson pushes his way to the front of the crowd. He's even at one point grasping one of the soldiers' bayonets in his hand and twitching it back and forth. Uh, there's uh, some feeling that the crowd feels uh, that the soldiers will not shoot, either that the soldiers don't really have uh, their, their guns aren't loaded, or that by under the British Constitution, they need a magistrate or a governor to come in and give them orders to shoot. They are not allowed simply to shoot at civilians, which, you know, is a good thing. But this may have given the crowd more confidence than uh, is really warranted. All right. I guess you should just continue to tell the story now. I'll unleash you. Okay. Uh, at this point, people are starting to throw things at the soldiers. Uh, a, uh, a, a brick bat, a piece of stone or wood, uh, sails over the crowd and hits one of the soldiers on the head named Private Edward Montgomery. He falls down, he gets up, he shouts fire, and he shoots his gun. It's not clear whether he shot his gun at the crowd or up in the air, but that starts the shooting. And bang, 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 all the soldiers except one fire their guns. And the crowd falls back, and three men are dead in the center, and there are more people wounded all over the place. So it was just one volley? It was just one volley. It wasn't volley. really a volley, right? It was fire at will? It, it was, was no... it, yes, I guess volley isn't the right word. If we mean everyone firing at once, it was the individual soldiers making the choice to fire. Like kind of like bang, 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 bang. That's right. right. Okay. And, uh, and as I said, one of the soldiers did not fire, which became significant. Uh, some of them may have fired over the crowd because there are people wounded way at the back of the crowd as well as the people wounded right up front. One of the men who uh, died instantly uh, with two uh, musket balls through his chest was that man named Michael Johnson. We later learn, uh, learned uh, somehow it came out within a week that he, uh, Michael Johnson was an alias of some sort probably and his real name was Crispus Attucks and he was from Framingham. Uh, Another of the men who died immediately was a man named Samuel Gray, who had been at the rope walk and had been fighting with the soldiers over the past few days. And there was some argument that he had been deliberately targeted by soldiers who recognized him from those fights and were shooting right at him. One of, one of the victims had a hole in his head the size of a fist? That was Samuel Gray. His head was uh, shot off, and there is there was some complaint that a private named Matthew Kilroy actually sort of stepped forward and stuck his bayonet into the man's brains. Gee. And you mentioned that, uh, and this is significant to the exhibit, that perhaps they fired over some, some guns were fired over the crowd's heads because people were shot far away. One of those was an insurance broker standing in a doorway, and that is significant to the exhibit. Yes, a man named Edward Payne was standing in his own home, at the, in the doorway of his own home, across the uh, street, and he was hit in the arm, and another musket ball went into his house. And uh, those were dug out a few days later. They were preserved in the family, and then they were given to the Massachusetts Historical Society. So when you go to the exhibit, the Voices from the Boston Massacre exhibit at the Massachusetts Historical Society, you can see two of the actual bullets from the Boston Massacre. Is the story of the bullet, or are the stories of the bullets there to go along with them? 
Uh, they are, let's see, the, the bullets are, are in a, a frame and they are uh, accompanied with pieces of paper that the family wrote down. I think, in fact, Edward Payne himself wrote down what the bullets were and then wrapped these pieces of paper around the bullets and passed them down in his family. And so, those pieces of paper have been carefully unfolded so that we can read them. So those those pieces of paper are actually from that mo- that time, that that yes, I mean that that looks like the province. I mean, you 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 cannot get uh, better evidence than that. All right, and how how does this finish out? How does the event finish out? Um, let's see. Well, the next uh, there was a another person who was at the back of the crowd was a teenager named Samuel Maverick, and he died the next morning. Uh, and then a few days later, a sailor named uh, Patrick Carr died. So there were five victims in all. Uh, I can argue that there was an apprentice who was badly wounded that day and did not die for many years. Did he, does he count as a victim or not? Well, usually not. We don't. We say not. There were five victims. There were also quite a number of wounded. That night, uh, the crowd fell back. Some of the town authorities, there was a, a town watchman, captain of the watch there, tried to take uh, command and uh, move the bodies away. Eventually, governor, acting governor Thomas Hutchinson comes from the north end. He is seen as a Tory, but uh, so he's not very popular, but he has the authority, and he goes up and uh, goes to the balcony of the old state house and calls out and says, there will be a trial. We will follow the law. I will live and die by the law. And between him promising a trial, between the military pulling their men back into the main guard and into the barracks, and between the town fathers trying to get people, it calmed down that night. So there was no more violence that night. And this is a good time to point out that the next day, the British had to figure out, what do we do? And there were these deliberations right in a room on the second floor of the State House. That's right. And that that has been... Those discussions have been developed into a play called Blood in the Snow, which I understand is going to be uh, put to, put on again this year. That's right. Uh, the Bostonian Society, which now uh, uh, manages the old State House Museum, uh, is going to be bringing back Blood on the Snow. It was a it, the morning of the sixth of March. We are. It's a real dramatization of these two sports. Uh, sources of authority. There was the governor, the royal governor appointed by the king up in that building uh, trying to figure out what to do. Did he have the authority? Did he want to send away the troops? Did he have the authority to send the troops? Meanwhile, over at Faneuil Hall and then at the Old South Meeting House, because Faneuil Hall at that time was too small for the crowd that turned out, there was a town meeting going on. And sort of shuttling in between were people like Samuel Adams, who took the lead in negotiating with the governor. And the governor said, okay, we'll send out the 29th regiment, the, the regiment that was involved in yeah. the shooting. We'll send those out of, the, out of the town. And Adams went out to the crowd, and he sort of walked through the crowd muttering, we need both regiments out. We need both, not just one, but both regiments. And they, of course, the British were afraid of a, an all-out rebellion and, and- getting overrun by the entire town. That's right. Yeah. Uh, they were, And furthermore, there was rumors that the neighboring towns were going to be sending right. in people. That and, could have been the That could have been Lexington conquered right there. That could have, there could have been more violence, certainly. Right. Now, what can you see related to what we've been talking about, the Boston Massacre? What can you see at your exhibit? 
you can see portraits of some of the important people involved, especially the lawyers. Uh, you can see uh, one of my favorite uh, artifacts when that little boy, Christopher Sider, was shot by the Cuffton man in February 1770, the newspaper said he had uh, some broadsides in his pocket, including one called Wolf's Summit of Human Glory. And I spent years looking for that, and it turns out the Massachusetts Historical Society has a copy, and they have laid out in a display case a copy of this broadside that this little boy uh, may have been carrying. Not the actual one, probably. Probably not, but uh, uh, from the same print run. Because from the same nobody, print run, because there was only uh, one print I've run. Never been able to find another example. Okay, this is the only surviving example that I know of. Uh, there are the bullets we talked about. There are the notes from the trial, uh, because the John Adams papers, the Robert Treat Payne papers. He was the, a prosecutor. Uh, the Samuel Quincy papers. He was another prosecutor. Those all ended up in the Massachusetts Historical Society. So they have brought out some of the choice uh, documents from that. There is a memoir from the royal governor, uh, sorry, from the daughter of the royal governor, who talks about how Captain Thomas Preston, the officer in charge who was tried for murder, used to sing at her father's parties. And what a decent guy he must be. Exactly. <laughs> he actually was was a rather uh, he probably was, man. He was, a, he was a decent guy, right? And, and he was acquitted. Uh, and there were uh, some people still blamed him, but it, there, most people agree that he did not actually give the order to fire. And therefore, he should not be blamed. You think it was the, the guy that was initially hit by the brick bat? Yes. Uh, he uh, told his attorneys, who then told a couple of uh, loyalists who later wrote that down, Cap uh, Governor Hutchinson and a judge named uh, Peter Oliver, later wrote that in their memoir. So that is comes to us reluctant information from the uh, the side that would prefer to blame everything on so the So after the fact, after the trial and everything, you get that information? Was that that? Yes, that didn't become public during that time. It became public only years later. That's pretty key. And it is uh, rather key. One of the curious things about the, the tr massacre trials is, according to the British law at the time, the defendants could not testify. So we, have, we don't know what the soldiers felt. We don't know what they saw. We don't have their version of their story at all. Was that a decision by their representation? Uh, that was the law of uh, the uh, British... Uh, court system at the time, okay. that the defendants were thought to be interested people, parties, which of course they were, right. and therefore could not be seen as, as witnesses. Adams, uh, first of all, they were tried separately. Did Adams represent them all separately? Uh, there was first a trial of the captain, uh, and John Adams and Josiah Quincy, uh, and a man named Robert Ockmutty, who was a very high-level uh, crown lawyer, all represented Captain Preston. Robert Treat Payne and Samuel Quincy were special prosecutors uh, for the case, and uh, the jury acquitted Preston. Then there was a trial of all the soldiers together. And this is where, the, when I talked before about one of the soldiers not firing, this is where it becomes significant. Because as soon as, if one soldier didn't fire, that means you had to prove that every soldier on trial actually pulled his trigger. Because if you couldn't prove that, then one of them might be the one who didn't fire and one of them might be innocent. And the prosecutor was not able to make that case for all the soldiers. Two of the soldiers were convicted of manslaughter, uh, Private uh, Montgomery, uh, the man who, uh, according to his own uh, attorney, shouted fire, and uh, Private Kilroy, the man who reportedly leaned forward and stuck his bayonet into one of the corpses' heads. Uh, because so, his 
he was a particularly mean guy. Is that why? why there was... are there are uh, reports of him getting into fights, particular fights with the locals. Uh, so uh, yes, he does seem to have been uh, a little, pr- probably a little more uh, uh, violent than the others. One quick question about the guns: Were they flintlocks or did, were they? Yes. Oh, they were. They so. were flintlocks. They were a single, single shot okay. guns. I believe that the soldiers had more than one. They had two bullets. What it was called a brace of balls in their guns because there were so many wounded and so many uh, um, balls that seemed to fly out in pairs. Okay. Um, other people who know these guns uh, are dubious about that. I don't. I, I don't claim to know the guns. I only know that the people of the time talked about loading two bullets into a gun. So I think they plus do the have numbers to seem, would seem to support exactly. That. And somebody like Chris Smith Addicts being shot twice through the chest. Right. Uh, that seems like uh, there's two, two bullets. Bucks. Two bullets there, or two balls there. Two balls. Two in the house. Yes, exactly. One in the guy's arm. One in the house. Mm-hmm. That's four. That, okay. Yeah. When is this? Uh, what are the hours of the exhibit? The uh, exhibit can be visited uh, Monday through Saturday, 10 through 4, and on Tuesdays as late as 7. Uh, again, it's on Boylston Street in Boston, and you can just go in, uh, sign in, say, I want to see the exhibit, and you you don't have to pay. You don't have to be a member. That's a great thing, folks. That's a, that's a thing for anybody to do, even if you don't have a vehicle. Maybe even if you do have a vehicle, take the MBTA and allow plenty of time and come and see this great, great exhibit. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Looking forward to having you back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.